Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. I am Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And there is an individual about whom we read only once in the Word of God. He was mentioned by Gamaliel, a noted doctor of the Law of Moses. Gamaliel made mention of this man in his speech before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the highest officials of the Hebrew nation, concerning what action they should take toward the apostles. This was after the death and resurrection of the Lord, after the beginning of the church. This was after the arrest of Peter and John for their preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 4, and the marvelous statement that they made in verses 19 and 20 of that chapter. It tells us, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This was after all the apostles were arrested and brought to trial before the Sanhedrin. And Peter made the statement in Acts chapter 5 verses 29 through 32, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This statement made the Jewish council furious. They began to plot how to put the apostles to death. We'll pick up reading in chapter 5 with verses 34 through 39. It tells us, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. I want to use this reference to Judas of Galilee as a starting point of our lesson. The information that I have will be giving concerning him comes from Flavius Josephus, who was a noted Jewish historian. It happened at a time when Jesus would have been in the neighborhood of 11 years old. Judas of Galilee gathered together a powerful company 
of reckless and determined patriots, and with wild fury fueled by nationalistic fervor, they launched an attack against the armory of the king located in Sephoris. This was a thriving town just four miles north of Nazareth. They overcame the guard, seized the weapons, and rallied many of the men of Galilee in a furious rebellion against the hated Romans. Most of these men would have been some of the zealots of whom the New Testament makes frequent mention. The Roman general in command of the forces in Palestine at the time was a man named Varus. He sent a considerable force of men to the city of Sepporus under the command of his friend Gaius. The Romans took the city of Sepporus, burned it, and made slaves of its inhabitants. They were not done. Varus ordered his men to round up all the zealots they could find, made slaves of the ones least involved in the uprising, but such as were clearly guilty of full participation, he had them crucified. These numbered about 2,000 men. On that day when Judas was slain and his army scattered, when Sephorus was burning and sending its smoke up to the heavens with his inhabitants being violently bound to be carried away into slavery, it is not a great stretch of imagination to believe that the 11-year-old Jesus was among the fearful and frightened crowd of Nazarenes who must have watched from their hilltop city as their neighboring city was being destroyed. These were their neighbors. These were their kinsmen. Nazarene boys had married girls from Sepporus, and the men of Sepporus would have married girls from Nazareth. This was not happening in a far-off, unknown group of people. These were the closest neighbors and kinsmen that Nazareth knew. And then just a few days later, when 2,000 men were died and nailed to a crude Roman cross and suspended between heaven and earth to die in slow agony, their terrible cries of tortured pain must have been heard clearly by the frightened Nazarenes who were still able to look upon the ghastly and horrible scene. The hills around Nazareth were almost certainly frequented by the growing boy Jesus. From the highest hill he could see nearly 60 miles in one direction and more than 20 miles in two other directions. The mighty sweeping plain of Estriolon unfolded beneath his eyes. He could see Carmel, where Elijah had triumphed over the prophets of Baal and had slain 400 of them. He could see Jezreel, where Naboth's vineyard had been. He could see Gilboa, where Saul and his sons perished. He could see Bethsham, where their desecrated bodies had been fastened to the walls of the city until rescued by the men of Jabesh Gilead, which was visible as well. He could see the plain where Gideon's little band of men had destroyed the host of Midian. Clearly visible as well were Mount Tabor and the book Kishon, with their memories of Barak's victory. Wherever Jesus looked, be it north, south, east, or west, he would have been looking at hills and valleys that had been literally soaked in blood. Nazareth was at a crossroads. Northern Palestine was a narrow land bridge over which the soldiers of generations had marched in seemingly endless waves between the Euphrates and the, Tigris, or the Nile rivers. I have been told that the Galilean hills are beautiful indeed when the flowers of springtime are in bloom, 
but those hills have also known the warm, rich crimson of human blood, as untold thousands died in anguish and terror. And you know what? In some ways, it continues to this very day. Now, I've said all of this simply to say that Jesus was born into a violent and evil world. He lived in it and he died in it. And he left the gospel of hope and salvation for all those who would be saved from it. Even as a boy, Jesus was no stranger to suffering. The anguished cry of the widow and the orphan were not unknown to his ears. His world, so far away and so long ago, was so nearly like our world of today that the similarities are startling, and if dwelt upon, horribly depressing. Will it always be so? Will there always be wars and rumors of wars? Will there always be hatred, violence, death, and destruction? The answer to all of those questions is yes, just as long as sinful man inhabits the earth and their sinful ways will continue. There are some here listening to this program who remember the wars of her world, the horrors of World War II, more who remember Korea, and still more who remember Vietnam, what we might call the first televised war, splashed across our television screens night after night. We saw the terrible blood and destruction of the first Gulf War, where the Iraqis were driven from Kuwait. We have seen far too often the result of unrest in the Middle Eastern countries, including the very hills that Jesus walked upon. We have seen the results of terrorist attacks. We have seen the common people rise up in an effort to obtain their freedom in various countries around the world, only to be horribly beaten down in a wave of blood and terror. Who will ever forget the sights connected with the policy of genocide? that was systematically carried out in Bosnia. I know I will never forget 9-11 and the sight of those planes crashing into the World Trade Centers, the second Iraq war and its continuing mounted death toll, as well as the horrible events that are carried on in Afghanistan. It is a bloody, bloody world in which we live that almost makes us throw up our hands in despair. When I was a child, I could go out and play, roam my neighborhood with my friends, and my parents did not have to worry if I would make it home. I may have a wreck on my bike or something like that, but they didn't have to worry about some wicked person picking me up or bringing my young life to a brutal end. Drive-by shootings were unheard of. Women could go shopping at night and walk to their cars in the parking lot without being afraid. On and on and on I could go and so could you. But because Jesus lived in this bloody old world and died here and lived again, there is hope. Hope for a different kind of place, a place wherein dwells righteousness. It is at that hope and by that hope that Christians live. It is the anchor of the soul, according to the Hebrew writer. Without it, man might as well despair because this bloody, wicked, and cruel world would be the very best that they could hope for. The gospel of Jesus was designed for such a world as we live in. The gospel of the Lord reaches down and robs the grave of its victory and steals from death its sting. Looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read verses 20 through 26. 
it tells us, but now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Move on down now to look at verses 51 through 57. Can any possible reason for despair be found in these marvelous words? Paul wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the glorious hope of the gospel of Jesus. If anyone seeks to live without it, they are lost forever in torment, after but a fleeting moment on this blood-stained planet. This is the best that it is ever going to get for someone who refuses to obey the Lord. But oh my, for the Christian, we're just passing through on the way to some place infinitely better, indescribably better. Consider Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Embrace these words and know that we are just passing through. The Hebrew writer wrote, These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having been seeing them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. My friends, just think about Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, where John wrote, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, 
for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Those who walk in the light of the word have a rendezvous with eternity that no mortal tongue can tell and no mortal mind can fully conceive. The smoking ruins of Sephoris must have made quite an impression upon the boy Jesus if he saw them. What a bloody, bloody world. But about 22 years later, the adult Jesus said in John 16:33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Words to think about. Thanks for listening.